Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Potzo, potzo nost. Which is, of course, Czech for Achtung, Achtung. I'm not sure we've ever had that one, have we? I don't think we haven't. I mean, we, and this is... It's not on my T-shirt. Three, <laughs> three years, three years in, and we haven't done Czech yet, which I think is a, an appalling um, uh, oversight. Indictment anyway. on our, you know, on a people our a, long, a long way away of whom we know little. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the ghastly Anglo-centricity of this podcast. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, this week in 1945, Prague became the last European capital to be liberated from Nazi rule. The liberation followed a brutal uprising as Czech citizens fought back after six years of occupation. Um, well, well yeah, yes, we upri- talked to Martin Davidson about that, didn't we, the other day? Yes. That pod's still to run, I think. But um, Yeah, the, uh, and the, uh, that uprising was the, the bloodiest of the lot, wasn't it? On the, on the 8th of May, Czech and German leaders signed a ceasefire, allowing German troops to withdraw from the city. I remember walking one, around Prague once with a, an old friend of mine who's sadly no longer with us, who was, the, who was working at the embassy there, and he was pointing out all the battle damage from the uprising. And he said, have you seen the film, Al? Uh, the, joke, the, the joke they have here is that the film's longer than the uprising itself. <laughs> so there was, some, there was some sort of Czech, clearly some Czech sardonicism about, you know, about what exactly had happened during the war. Anyway, um, how are you, James? Yeah, no, I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, I'm all right. Um, you know, cricket season's upon us, so that's all good. Great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've been sort of, um, I've been pretty busy, actually. It's been, it's What's been the good. news with the Lloyd Carrier? Yeah, so, um, well, Stuart Bertie has been to photographs, so, yeah. so therefore it's official, it's really, really happening. Um, right. So he's been, so, so yeah, so it's a, that's a very good question. So what Marx has been doing is, so what you've got to do is you've got to sort of strip everything back and, and yeah. take everything to pieces, make yeah. a note of what everything is, work out what can be used again, what can't be, what needs to be completely built from fresh. The good yeah. news is that nearly all of it can be used again. Ah. Um, he's got. He's taken the old Ford. Do you remember we had the original chassis, and then we had a Ford the truck. Fordson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Ford truck. So he's he's now cut the truck chassis to the right size, filled in right. holes and welded yeah. and done all that yeah. sort of stuff. So it's it's now as it should be to be a Lloyd carrier. Brilliant. He's then taken apart all the parts, so the differentials, the you know all the drives, um, yeah. all the um, um, suspension. Get yep. the horseman suspension. In fact, actually, we must yep. get in touch with horsemen again because yes, we need to, to go. Maybe need go to go and, and see, go see them. Yeah. And a lot of stuff is going off to be shot blasted. Right. So this is where you take off the absolute top layer of it. Yeah. And basically, underneath, you're revealing the kind of perfect metal again. We so it comes hope. back looking all shiny and bright and yep. near, yeah, yeah, you hope. <laughs> yeah. So so ah. so what he said to me the other day was was we're at the stage where we've done all the kind of sort of stripping it all down. And once everything comes back from the shot blasters, that's when the rebuild starts. And that's when you know. That's when you know which bits are completely corrupted and which bits are. Yes, uh, but I think he's got good. a pretty good. A good. Sort yes, he's, he's of said so. He's pretty that. optimistic about about the, the state of it. I mean, the, one of the reasons I ask is as um, you know, I was uh, on Instagram. Another Lloyd Carrier rebuild popped up on my thing and said, "How's your How's your Lloyd Carrier going?" Right, and someone else is re- someone else somewhere is rebuilding well, Tobin, one as well. Tobin and Tom are doing one. I mean, it's it's it, it, obviously it's the it's the hip 
um, pre-APC yeah. to be built, uh, rebuilding right now, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. So we're right, we're cutting edge. I that, literally uh, can't gym. wait to go get it. <laughs> I mean, what a day that will be. It will be a day of days. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, on the subject of building, I, I hope uh, everyone doing their kit off builds, their model builds, they're making good progress. I've done a, a Churchill, inevitably. Have you? Yeah, mm-hmm. well, the Tamiya Churchill kit is cheap and goes but goes together very easily. And then yep. the fun is where to put the mud. So I've done, yeah. I've done a. a th- this is a little kit that has a sort of that has a French farmer handing over a baguette as part of the little diorama <laughs> that goes with it. <laughs> got to be under thirty pounds. It's, <laughs> it's got to be under thirty pounds. Oh, um, what have those, you been? What have you been up to? You're, you're still on tour. Uh, I've been touring. Um, uh, and. Uh, we were where were yeah, we? Yeah, so that's night? why you're sounding a bit croaky today. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Because we were in Nottingham last night. night, and they shut the M1. They shut the M1 in two places. I said to, uh, the other half. Uh, I said, "Oh, we'll be back about half twelve, unless you know, it's, unless it's all fifty on the M1, or they shut it." And uh, we spent an hour on the motorway in traffic, in solid traffic outside Northampton somewhere last night. So drumming the dashboard. In yeah, exactly. Well, no reading. So I was reading. I was reading more of that. Um, the Black Door. Um, Oh yes, about, uh, in prime ministers and intelligence, and the the uh, um, I've gone past the Second World War, so I've gone past SOE and OSS parachuting in rival teams of people into Burma and Thailand to try and turn the locals in their direction. So the SOE are trying to keep the imperial thing going, OSS are trying to um, run against it, and you 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 literally you literally have different. Uh, um, you know, undercover undercover people being dropped in by the two allies, by Britain and America, who are working directly against each other. Right. Um, uh, we were at, we were we were coalition partners once, but that was then, and this is well, now. well, it, well, exactly. And and also, but what's fascinating is all the people Churchill has appointed to um, uh, running SOE out in that part of the world. Uh, uh, you know, work for enormous imperial companies. So the so the they're they're what they're doing is they're trying to they're trying to shore up imperial business interests in the far east that's what that's what they're interested in doing yeah and soe soe is basically a wing of british commercial interest in in places like burma and there's this attempt to churchill discusses turning thailand into a sort of a a, a british empire protectorate or something to extend do do you think all the soe officers know that you know the jebras are going in and stuff do they know no i i I sincerely doubt that they're 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 interested in the problem right in front of them which is mobilizing the local population against the japanese you know i mean i I don't i don't think i don't think they think that but the people running it certainly do and 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 churchill definitely does and it's part of it's really very much part of how he sees extending in fact extending the british empire to protect it at the end of the war wow. um, e- even into thailand which is fascinating but but so i got i've got past that and then i've got onto what what atlee does with the so you know churchill sets up what is essentially the the intelligence community we have now um Interestingly, he's the only prime minister ever to have mentioned the jic the joint intelligence committee in his memoirs no one does after that after the war only churchill so there is this problem with churchill that he's a bit <coughs> he likes Illegal. showing off he likes he likes showing off the intelligence stuff because he likes the skull he likes intelligence stuff. Exactly, exactly. And he's 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 encouraged them all and he's let the whole thing bloom. Attlee comes in and basically thinks, right, okay, Cold War's on. This is an incredibly useful tool for the government. He has um MI five answering directly to him and not going through the Home Secretary. And but he's also very sensitive to this idea that Churchill put about in the election in 45, that, that Attlee's going to create a Gestapo state that's spying on people. 
He's very sensitive to that. So it gets MI5 to draw back from what it's been doing, which is basically investigating absolutely everyone who's a communist um, because MI5 is resolutely anti-communist still you know was before the war is after the war and obviously Atlee even has more some, so after the war well even more so after the war but, but well enthusiastically so they like they, they sort of embrace their destiny but but Atlee's obviously what he's more men about, of destiny well yeah, again, yeah exactly oh god help us but um but he's but he's also worried about the Labour Party which is of course you yeah. know a, 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 got lots of communist people coming through it and it's Atlee that establishes Atlee that establishes the tradition of um, when you're inducted as prime minister or when, you're, when you become prime minister, when you come to Downing Street, the MI5 sit you down and tell you who they think is a security risk within your potential cabinet. And that's, that, that comes from Atlee because he's worried about he's worried about the Labour Party during the Cold War. And then you've got the Fuchs scandal and, uh, you know, MI5 not investigating uh, uh, people properly, letting them go and it quite clearly being... Because there's all sorts of people who are, you know, no good in MI6 as well as, MI, as, well as MI5 who are communists and, uh, and have got away with it because they're posh, basically. So right. You know, yeah, of course. The, the Cambridge spies. And it, it's very, very interesting. And then, and, then, and then I've just got to Churchill coming in and what does he decide to do with what Atlee's built out of this, the intelligence community that, that he's inherited in, in 45 to 51? And then 51 to 55, obviously Churchill's, Churchill's basically back in, no, back in, but not up to the job. It doesn't really know what's going on and all this sort of stuff. And so, so all of Atlee's plans for things like Iraq, the coup in Iraq, you know, uh, uh, displacing Mossadegh, who after all is a CIA man. So there's an, there's an immediately a problem um, in Iraq. Churchill inherits all of it from Atlee and approves it all. So it's, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating the, the post-war intelligence thing, you know, the, the, it's all very well. Churchill's set getting this thing up on its legs during the war. It's what then happens to it during the during the Cold War that I think is really, really very interesting. And GCHQ aren't able to aren't getting any wireless traffic from um, from the Soviets in the way that they were from the from the Germans during the Second World War. And Churchill's going, "Where's my Where's my gossip? Where's my yeah. raw telegrams to read?" And they're saying, "Well, we haven't got them. They don't exist because the Russians are too good at this." Or are better at it than the Germans. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. But, but the but the fact that this thing gets that it's Churchill entirely. Who's you know all the intelligence stuff we've got now, all of the inheritance is Churchill basically writing people writing blank checks for people, and and you know famously in 1941 when Bletchley come to him and say we haven't got enough people, we haven't got enough stuff, and you need we need your help, and he he's furious about it. There's a really great story about Churchill going to visit Bletchley. And what, when's um, this? What, what time? 1941. Right, early and, on. Uh, uh, early on, and uh, the guards on the hut he goes, uh, he goes into say to, the, say to his bodyguards, not you! They shout at, uh, shout at the bodyguards, not you! And the bodyguards wait outside the hut because, because it's too secret for Churchill's bodyguards. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, on, that's next on my list, about three I mean, down a- the line. I mean, the thing is, is it, it's it. There's, you know, it's I've it's it. I've it, got it. it. It's easily it's digestible. Arrived. That that oh, oh, brilliant. It's easily digestible. And that chat we had with um, Simon Parkin, I thought I was. I, I still. I keep going back and looking at that. Um, the list at the end of the book. So, so the, we're upcoming. Um, uh, in fact, on Thursday, we're joined by Simon Simon Parkin to discuss his new book, The Island of Extraordinary Captives, which is about internment. Chiefly, the Hutchinson camp on the Isle of Man, which is where 
Lots of lots of um, suspect enemy alien uh, potential fifth columnists were kept. So basically, uh, unfortunate uh, um, and uh, traduced Jewish people who then set up well, a university, essentially. Or, yeah, or, 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 you know, the what happens in university? I love it. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, well, and I was I was sort of grilling him particularly keenly because. Um, uh, I may have mentioned that I'm writing this novel at the moment, which is yeah. set in a, a in a in a small rural community in somewhere in South Wiltshire um, yeah. <laughs> during the Second World War. And is there a crest w- farm? <laughs> there isn't a crest farm actually, but there right, is. Okay. Uh, but there is a farm, most definitely. Um, and anyway, one of the uh, one of the characters um, is um, is married to one of the one of the one of the brothers, and yeah. she is a German. Right. Ah. Uh, and she's been living there since, you know, the 1920s, got, right. you know, English kids and all the rest of it. Right. But she gets Category B. So I've got to work okay. out what happened to her. And I'm wondering whether she gets interned, even though she's married to an Englishman or not. I don't know. I've got, I need to sort well, of... Well, they're um, going for the men, though, aren't they? Yeah, the, the, largely, but not entirely. So I think she's going to stay Category B and then I'm going to sort of get her off or something. But I think there might right. be... Maybe she's sort of, you know, arrested and on her way, but gets rescued at the last minute or something. Right, OK. So never okay. actually sets foot on the Isle of Man. I don't know. Right. Oh, well, I mean, anyway, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating, a fascinating chat, though, and it, and and it. I mean, obviously, the the, the government's caught between a rock and a hard place because it doesn't know what it doesn't know what to do. There is a panic on. Government government needs to do something. Well, it's a strategic it? earthquake, isn't it? It's a yeah, strategic yeah, yeah. earthquake, and you know, and this yeah. is this is you know, you you might offend and be a bit unfair to you know sixty thousand and you know um, foreigners, but. As you say, there's a war on, and sometimes well, and, you know well, things are you know gr- the greater the greater security is, is. Well, we were just talking about we were just talking about Atley then. Atley was Atley was involved in this, and and I can't remember what he said. He says something like, "Free speech and freedom of movement are all very well in times of peace, but there's a war on." He says something <laughs> says like Labour that. Leader. He says, well, yeah. exactly, because because his view is, oh crap. Well, we're going to have to do this. Uh, you know, no no, no 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 two ways about it. This is something we're going to need to do. Hmm. Um, which is which is which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah, amazing. Well, yes, uh, but it also goes to show how serious everyone thought it was at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's the shock of it, isn't it? It's it's yeah. a total shock of what's happened on the continent, yeah. and it makes people yeah. do extreme things. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and and that does mean a lot of privations for a lot of people. I mean, obviously yeah. not just 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 foreigners, but I mean the yeah. curfews, the blackouts, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I thought it was interesting though um, uh, that uh, you know that that what you actually that what you have is um, a muscle memory from the First World War, because that's the thing you mentioned, didn't he? So the, the, the Asquith government had had done it um, uh, already. So um, it, again, and, and obviously promised that they would never, they would never do it. They would never do it again. I mean, the the, the interesting thing is the t- there's the Tyler Kent case, which is around yes, the same time as well. You yeah. know, so there's there's all this panic. There's uh, uh, p- people don't know what the Tyler Kent case is. The 18th of May. The um uh, the British discover this this guy is a, um, a, a cipher clerk at the American Embassy in London, um who who's a cipher clerk at the Embassy of London. But they've obviously not vetted him very well. All the vetting all the vetting is found to be perfectly right. But he's a member of a thing called the Right, or he's got links with a thing called the Right Club, who are a pro-German anti-Semitic group. Yeah, and he's passing on documents. And MI five MI five catch him, and amazingly, he he he. he does his prison sentence, returns to the US and, be- and becomes a newspaper publisher for the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> yeah, amazing. 
So um, no reform in prison for him. No, no, doesn't seem to, prison doesn't seem to work in his case. But that's all part of that's all part of the sort of you know you've got uh, category A is five thousand six hundred people, category B is six thousand eight hundred people, and sixty four thousand people are category C who are allowed who are left at sort of curtailed liberty. But but obviously you know I mean when and then all when, those categories that they just sort of disappear after a while yeah 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 but then the shit hits the fan in france they go right we're gonna have to collar collar the laws i mean anyway but it was very interesting talking to talking to um uh simon about that what was his other book you said he'd written oh it's the one about the um about the wrens and the and the work at western approaches command uh the wolves and the something and and you know it's all about the 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 western approaches command and that bunker that we've been promised uh you know we've been offered a chance to go and visit yeah and and the wrens who were involved the plotters and all the work they were doing on kind of you know uh, on intelligence work it's really training training the training the uh uh the destroyer captains as well all that kind of stuff yeah 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 it's absolutely fascinating it's really 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 interesting it's really good i read it when it first came out but God, it's, it's something. It's got wolves in the title. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now you sent me. You sent me something to read as well. Well, yeah. Um, so I've been having a really interesting week because I'm I'm reading um, PCA Peter Caddick Adams's his yep. book um, 1945 Victory in the West. Yeah. Uh, which is just utterly fascinating. I've, I've got to say, it's really. Yeah. It's 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 properly good. Um, and then I also came across this this piece by Paul Fussell, who's yep. this academic. Yeah. Um, he was a post-war academic. Um, of of literature, um, yeah. but he also wrote a book about the uh, the First World War, which is hugely acclaimed yeah. at, at the time. And he's also written a book about which is sort of touching on his own experiences, which I have read. Yeah. But yeah. A, a general piece about the war, a small tome called Wartime. Yeah. Um, but this one is 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 called My War, and yeah. he's absolutely in the declinist camp. I mean, you know, he really is in the kind yeah. of, it was a shit show, and we were lambs to slaughter and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a waste, a complete waste of our and time. And it was a complete waste. And, yeah. but it's, it's, it's utterly, utterly fascinating. And it's prompted all sorts of thoughts this week. Because yeah. one of the key things about PCA's book is, yes, he does, he does the, the bottom up. He does the kind of the guy in the foxhole. He does the, the infantryman yeah. going forward, yeah. all the rest of it. But there is a huge amount on command. Right. So a large part of Peter's book is on all those forgotten generals, those divisional Millican and people like this. um, And, you know, completely um, brings back to life people like Divas and... And and all all those generals that just everyone's just forgotten about. Yeah. And... I've been a big fan of Bill Simpson and the Night Army for, yeah. for, you know, the more I find out about him, the more I think he's impressive. And, and, and Peter's book absolutely puts him right on top as kind of one of the the very, 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 very best. Yeah. So every night before he goes, he turns in, Simpson calls every single one of his core commanders and chats right. through what's happened that day, what they right. need. And all the rest of it. He's picked really good people. And I think one of the keys to successful command is picking really, yeah. really good subordinates, which, of course, is yeah. Bill Slim's great USP. Yeah. You know, getting in people like um, Messavi and Punch Cowan. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, sticking with Matthew them as Stafford well. And sticking with them and all the rest yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Cowan's, Cowan's there right through everything, isn't he? At, at that level. Mm. And, and he knows he's, he's found his level and he's, he's learning and he's good. 
Uh, and Simpson's absolutely right. And Simpson is a diplomat. He works very well with Monty, you know, yeah. despite all those sort of various testing, um, um, you know, differences of culture and Monty just yeah. being difficult yeah. and all the rest of it. He's very yeah. good with that. He gets on with absolutely everybody. He's got real, you know, he, he's, he's a complete general because he's got that absolute understanding of the strategic situation, the operational level and yeah. the tactical level. The operational yeah. level, he's absolutely amazing at. So, so what is so impressive is the way they are training before the march, op- you know, before um, yeah. Grenade, which is the yeah. kind of counterpart to Operation Veritable in um, late... Fe- I think it launches yeah. on the 23rd of February to get across the Ruhr River, the Ruhr yeah. River. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then the kind of crossing of the Rhine and all the rest of it, moving up to the Rhine into that kind of sort of platinate and stuff. I mean, it's, it's really... It's really impressive. And what you're getting is this impression of a a really increasingly well-oiled military machine. Yeah. And and I remember Peter saying to me some years ago, the American army by 1945 was the best in the world, bar none. Because of its completeness, because of its equipment, because of its, its, its understanding of how to operate. Yeah. Because of its, you know, just every component of it was starting to really all just clink together and and, yeah. and 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 work really really well and when you're reading about operation grenade this operation of ninth army u.s ninth yeah. army yeah you sort of think wow that's impressive it's yeah. just so impressive the equipment the maintenance of the effort everyone knowing what they've got to do the training that's gone in beforehand the coordination yeah. with yeah. artillery engineers all that kind of stuff the just the sheer weight of equipment that's going forward it's just really impressive but what does- then then you read paul fussell yeah. who is part of you know divas's and patches um yeah. uh seventh army uh which is you know and these are two of the people that that peter in his book completely rehabilitates and and it's very very hard to disagree with him in any way yeah um and then you read paul fussell who's part of that and what a disillusioned kind of hacked off declining his view it is and it's just fascinating isn't it well there's a really interesting bit where he took where he talks about because i've got i've got um uh, in the current show i've got a bit my current show i've got this bit about how we're living in a history book and and if you're gonna if you're gonna live in a history book you hope for maybe a paragraph, half a page at the most, you don't want to be a whole history book, right? Because then things have really that's gone right. To sh- things have really gone to shit. Yeah. Well, this is what he said. This is what this is what Fussell says. Um. Uh. Uh. What got us going and carried us through was the conviction that suffer as we might, we were at least making history. But we didn't even do that. Little Hearts, seven hundred sixty-six page of the history of the Second World War. Never heard of us. It mentions neither March the 15th nor the 103rd Infantry Division. The only satisfaction history has offered is the evidence that we caused jo- Joseph Goebbels some ang- extra anxiety. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely it's, amazing. It's so, but really, even at the beginning, really... he says, says, you know, sort of how... Do, so he's... he's because he was a, an associate editor of, of Harper's magazine. Yeah. So he used to yeah. contribute and stuff. And, you know, and, and whenever he was asked about the Second World War, he'd just sort of grumble and complain and be really sort of stark about it. And, yeah. Uh, um, and talk about the kind of, you know, the awful bloodshed and, and how awful it was. Yeah. Uh, and he says, says, how did I pick up this dark, ironical flip view of the war? Why yeah. do I enjoy exhibiting it? And he says, you know, I contracted it in the infantry. And it was when I yeah. was out in, in France and Germany. Yeah. Um, in, in 19, end of 1944, beginning of 1945, that's when I got it. Yeah. Um, and, um, he says, you know, 
He's talking about himself in the third person, and he goes, he goes, you know, he's embittered that the Air Corps had beds to sleep in, that yeah. Patton's Third Army got all the credit, yeah. that non-combatants yeah. of the Medical, Administrative and Quartermaster Corps wore the same battle stars as he, that soon after the war, the enemy he had laboured to destroy had been rearmed yeah. by his own government and position to oppose one of his old allies. We yeah. broke our ass for nothing, says Sergeant yeah. Croft in The Naked and the Dead. You know, yeah. it's just, the war made me a foot soldier for the rest of my life. Well, I mean, and after ti- any war, foot soldiers are touchy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's subtitled "How I Got Irony in the Infantry." I mean, yeah. uh, and it's it's a it's a it's it's fa- fascinating, and that sort of sardonic um, uh, PBI, you know, attitude. Yes, it's, it's, think- it's, it's Joe and Bill, isn't it? In in yeah. Um, yeah. Bill Maudlin's. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, I, 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 I mean, it's interesting because it sits alongside. God, what's the name of that book? The, the, the one about the one about warfare that, um, uh, uh that uh, Waitman recommended. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, I, 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 I'll come back to it. Um, uh, where it says, all right, I'm, I'm going to tell you how I feel about war, but then place it because it's interesting because he's he's a literary critic, Paul Fussell, and a writer, isn't he? So he's he's saying, you know, when I write about when I review literature. I'm doing it from the point of view of a sardonic infantryman because I'm, I'm a I'm a pissed off infantryman and I I will I will always Bill will be for the rest of my life. The idea of of that being fed into into literary criticism is pretty interesting. And then it, and then it, and then he talks about how uh, how hierarchies and military hierarchies for there's a generation of people who who that's how they see the world. That's what they've come to accept. That's what they've because that's what worked for them and that and that framed their lives completely and it's and and it's very interesting you know he talks about he, he you know he talks about universities and hierarchies at the end of this piece which is i think really 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 really, really fascinating he never left basically is what yeah. he's saying yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. but also you know so, so, so how did i get to this in the first place and he said well you know i just sort of you know i sort of I mean, you, you know, it's the callowness of youth, isn't it? You just think yeah. it's all going to be a bit of a lark. And, yeah. and you know, he, he was thinking about it because he thought it would be slacker than some of the other things. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and he had a bit of puppy fat and he just thought, oh, you know, I can't be arsed. And he never liked yeah. sport. Yeah, he didn't want to do sport. So he, do sport. And he says, you know, within three weeks, you know, all the puppy fat's gone and he's kind of sort of yeah. lean and owned, you yeah. know, and it's completely different. And, it, and yeah. you know, I was sort of thinking back to kind of when I was 18 and, you know, we've had this, before, this conversation before where, you know, you sort of think, you you just are really callow because your your worldview is so narrow. You know, as a teenager, yep. you might be an adult on paper at eighteen or whatever. But you know, you're you're all you're thinking about is you know, are you going to go with your mates at the weekend? You know, are you going to pull some girl? Are you going to you know get fifty in the cricket match? It, fall you know, off it, your moped? Or fall off your moped? But it, but yeah. it's it's you know it's you know you're you're instinctively quite selfish and and yep. narrow minded and what's going on in the wider world? Oh, I can give a toss about that. And you know, and these are all these people who are suddenly being signed up to fight. And you know, that's why they are being signed up to fight because yep. they don't know anything. Yeah, and Paul Fussell, despite being incredibly clever and a middle-class college boy, is kind of absolute testimony to that. And, and, and when he actually does get to France, it's just a total shock. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. Shh. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. How he talks about combat is very, yeah, very interesting. isn't it? That it's just completely random, which, which strangely, um, I've been reading, uh, the other book I've been reading is uh, Matthew Ford, you know, who came on to talk, yes. talk to us ages ago about, um, you know, the development of small arms. I've read his book, Weapon of Choice, which is his sort of overview of small arms in the 20th century or the last 100 years. And there is a section in that about Zuckerman, Solly Zuckerman. Solly Zuckerman, yeah. Sets himself to work to look at lethality because no one's done it before. No one has bothered to study lethality. No one has looked at what's killing infantrymen. And and the stuff he discovers is re- is basically revolutionary and, and feeds into uh, the next 50 years of argument about small arms procurement and what what small arm you need and what you need to give an infantryman and what what actually kills people on the battlefield and the, the, what's interesting is, is reading fussell talking about this about how you know and he and he, and he calls it irrational combat yes um uh, that th- you just don't know what's going on th- the strangest things will kill people yes you, 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 you know absolutely um, well there's uh, this brilliant bit here and he says there's we were in combat, in inverted commas. Yeah. He says, I find the word embarrassing, carrying as it does false chivalric overtones, as in single combat. But synonyms are worse. Fighting is not accurate, because much of the time you're being shelled, which is not fighting, but suffering. Yeah. Battle is too high and remote. Inaction is a euphemism suited more to dire telegrams than description. Yeah. Combat will have to do. And my first hours of it, I recall daily, even now. They fueled and they still fuel my view of things. And basically, he, he, he they move into the front line at yep. night. Yeah. He says, everyone knows that night night reliefs are, 
a nightmare because no one can see anything. Yeah. You know, you're in, and, and the people who are replacing the people that are there are completely discombobulated and disorientated yeah. because yeah. they've never been there before. So, you know, yeah. where's the front line? What is it? You lose yeah, your yeah, sense yeah. of direction. Yeah. You know, you can't have torches on, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And he says, you know, at dawn I awoke and what I saw all around were numerous objects I'd miraculously not tripped over in the dark. These objects were dozens of dead German boys in greenish-grey uniforms, killed a day or two before by the company we were relieving. Yeah. If darkness had hidden them from us, dawn disclosed them with open eyes and greenish-white faces like marble, still clutching their rifles and machine pistols in the 17-year-old hands, fixed where they'd fallen. I yeah. mean, and he says, after that, one day was much like another. Attack at dawn, run and fall and crawl and sweat and worry and shoot and be shot at and cow from mortar shells, always keeping up a jaunty carriage in front of one's platoon. Well, and and then he go, and then he goes on, right? Before we all knew it, he'd lost half the company, and we all realised then that for us there would be no way out until the war ended. But ended, but sickness, wounds, or oblivion, and the war would end only as we pressed our painful daily advance. Getting it over was our sole motive. And then he says this: Yes, we knew about the Jews, but our skins seemed to us more valuable at the time. That throws into, I mean, and, and this maybe, maybe Fussell had a, a, you know, a taste, like an ironic thing that need, that was opened by the war. But that's in stark contrast to the sort of, you know, fluttering flags and bugles of a kind of, of a kind of 1990s post band of brothers way of looking at the Second World War, which is, after all, we, we stopped the Holocaust at least. He doesn't think that. He thinks, I'm there, I'm there to, I'm there I'm getting it over is my sole motive. My skin's more valuable to me than anything else. That's really, really interesting because that's not, that's not the sort of greatest generation veneration. He's not asking to be venerated. He's not well, saying he's part Keith of the greatest Lowe is very good on this. Yeah. You know, there was the fear and the loathing or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, 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 you know, his, his, his book on this sort of a pointing out that not everyone was heroes and not everyone, yeah. you know, felt venerated at the time and, you know, we shouldn't be kind of venerating people in, in yeah. quite so. And then you have that complication of the, my conversations with those people in, in Dresden last week where, yeah. you know, no veteran should be venerated, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, and, he, and, and it's the thing that I got... The other thing that he, he gets across is the thing that I really discovered when I was doing the show at Rangers was this sort of mounting frustration that they're still fighting when they're completely be beaten. And he says, yeah. you know, and they were... And he's talking about dead Germans. He goes, and they were so pitifully dressed and accoutred. That was touching. Boys with raggedy ad hoc uniforms and Panzerfaust and too few comrades. What were they doing? They were yeah. killing themselves. And for me, who couldn't imagine being killed, for people my age voluntarily to get themselves killed caused my mouth to drop open. And, you know, and he talks about, about you know, why did the red-haired young yeah. German machine gunner firing at us in the woods not go on living, marrying, going to university, going to the beach, you know, laughing, smiling, but keep firing long after he had made his point? And so require us to kill him with a grenade. Yeah, and that's and I think that's a that well, that's, encapsulates. That's the question. About that the is the question. But about it the is last also year of the war. Yeah. Yes, but it's also made me think about the declinist view. Yeah, and and a lot of it is to do with people like Paul Fussell talking to people like Max and and Carlo Deste. And, yeah. and expressing it in exactly those terms, and then think about the reference points. You know, when are those books being? You know, memoirs of the war being 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 written. Well, post Vietnam. Well, so that... but post Vietnam, and and also 
in the 60s when Vietnam's going on. So you think about the Italian campaign, which basically has a massive great black mark on it. You know, it was a struggle. It was a cock up. We destroyed monasteries. We sort of pissed about in mountains, in the mud. What were we doing? This is the Allied perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you look at the books that came out of it by people like Rally Trevelyan and people like that. Yeah. They were, and Dominic Graham... um, uh, you know, these guys were junior officers like Paul Fussell yeah. in the 8th Army. 8th Army that had been kind of, you know, turned into a second tier after D-Day. Yeah. Who'd been told that they couldn't go into Rome and they'd be shot by Americans if they yeah. were. You know, yeah. well, absolute nonsense, but, but yeah, yeah. you know, went round like wildfire. You know, second front, the D-Day Dodgers, all this kind of stuff. And, yeah. and you start yeah. to see where this these the seeds of disillusionment have all come and it's and it, and these are the people that are writing the history intelligent well-educated people who are then writing history yeah. books which yeah. are a means of getting off their chest their disappointments and disillusionments and, yeah. and i would and i would say that one of the reasons why he's like this is because he's in seventh army uh, you know which yeah. has been forgotten which doesn't get the glory of the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, bradley yeah, yeah. yes that go- army group well and it goes straight to why did Patton get all the credit it's a it's kind of as simple as that yeah so, so I don't think he's typical. He's not atypical, or clearly, but but he's not. You know, he he's telling it because after the war they felt abandoned because they're not in Little Hearts book because no yeah. one cares about the hundred and third Cactus Division yeah. because they were doing stuff. In, you know, they were doing stuff in the in the Tsar Triangle. They weren't doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, they weren't well, going I mean, across the Ardennes. But but but, 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 the but you know, you could you could you could roll this out, couldn't you? So the so the sort of pop history. Second World War is, is D-Day, you know, it's this thing yeah. we've talked about before, is D-Day and the thing we talked to, to about with Woody. Yeah, but when does the Normandy battle end? You know, um, uh, uh, so that, so you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then it's, and the other it's day, D-Day you know, we were... and then it's Arnhem and then right. it's the Battle of the Bulge and then somehow... Monty takes a surrender in, in you know, up in, up in, up, up in, uh, on Ludovic Heath. How did, how, how did that happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, which is precisely why I'm going to be doing, you know, this. I've actually, I'm not going to call it West Warning, I'm going to call it Endgame. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's why I'm doing my kind of, you know, aftermarket garden to the rest of the war, war piece for precisely yeah. that reason, because yeah. it hasn't really been done. I mean, obviously, Peter's now doing it and his book is yeah. fantastic, but he's doing yeah. just 1945. Yeah. But, but the sort of, you know, I think the problem is, is is the way we tell the Second World War is 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 obviously through, through movies and things, but that then leads you to tell it in terms of ink spots. Yeah, and 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 the, the blotting paper isn't, you know, the the different ink spots of the, the the ink isn't spreading to make a complete hole, so it remains yeah. a series of ink, but this, ink but spots. But this is but this is how this is how um, also sort of major contributions can submerge. So, you know, Seventy uh, Ninth Armored Division, one of my bugbears. Are known Never get, the fun- really gets mentioned apart from the, sort of you know they're the funnies on D-Day because it's wacky equipment and you could you can you can show a bit of footage of a flail crab or, or you, you know right. uh, uh, you're forgetting the the vital role the flame fr- the crocodiles played at they, and the flails and you know every single every single account of an assault is a couple of flails go forward you know first and two of them are knocked out. And then, the, and then you have to figure out what to do about the minefield. Absolutely, every account of infantry attacks, you know, in a thing like veritable, couple of flails, couple of crocodiles, kangaroos, all this stuff that all this stuff that's that's just part of the scenery has gone into the sort of gone in, been digested into things. Just you know that that, that and isn't actually, then accounted for. You know what? For. When I was in Dresden, and I was taken to the tank depot. 
the yeah. sort of underground basement. One of the things they had was a leopard one with a with a with a, a flail on the front. Really? Yeah. Well, there you which go. which you know, if you want to kind of realize the intrinsic good sense of a design. Yeah, it gets yeah, copied yeah. and taken on into yeah, the next exactly. generation. Moment, it's moment, um, it's nicked. So I just um, think it's. I think it. You know, it, this this article just poses so many kind of interesting thoughts. You know, and, well, and what well, he could, and, and and you know, if you re, if you read Peter, and I would certainly agree with Peter that that you know the the Allies are supremely well equipped. You know, in every single way, but he's complaining about the fact that they don't have the right cold weather kit. Yeah. Well, the Allies are supremely well equipped, but there's also some graft going on and stuff not getting to people, and you know, uh, uh, the, the, and it's still imperfect because, after all, you know, <clears throat> no one quite. You can have that situation where no one knows where anyone is, and the front, if the front's fluid and moving, and all that sort of thing, you could you can end up disconnected from from your. Legi- I mean, I I think it's very interesting because because the in Matthew in Matthew Ford's book, in it, there's another there's a bit about there's a bit about Sidney Jarry. Um, uh, offering the offering to Para uh, um, uh, advice on what weapons to take to um, based on his experience in Normandy, so he tells them to take twice as many GPMGs, general purpose machine guns, because he says you because of his experience of dealing with MG forty twos, and then you get you get into the research around um, uh, the 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 the. When the British bring in the SA-80, you know the bullpup rifle that they've still got, they've still kind of got now. They also did, with it, they did a version that had a longer barrel and a bipod, and was a was a support infantry support weapon, section support weapon. So basically, like a basically to replace the Bren gun rather than a belt fed thing. And and then there's a big argument in the army in the ninth in the nineties and into the two thousands about whether what the art infantry really need is a belt fed weapon or what they need is this sort of Bren gunny thing. And it's all to do with Northern Ireland. It's all to do with um, magazine ammunition is easier to take care of and to carry and belt ammunition. If you've got a belt ammunition weapon, it places great pressure on the section. Well, and as Peter pointed out, Peter pointed out in his book that that also the advantage of having magazine over belt fed is you have less jamming because you get less dirty. But, well, it's all, well, it's, and all and and all that right. And there's this great debate that goes on backwards and forwards. And one of the one of the conclusions that they come to is that the belt fed weapon that chucks down tons of fire. Right. And we've talked about this before, is that eventually in accounts and in reports. Um, and there's that great Canadian battle report where the guy goes, we are the MG42 is easy to deal. We know how to deal with them now. Right. Is it's not the people you're shooting it at that make, that the MG42 has the effect on? It's the people shooting the MG42 or the belt-fed weapon, because they're laying down tons of fire. They feel good about laying down tons of fire, and it's reassuring for your guys if you're dishing out that volume of fire. That is the effect that there's a, a, one argument that that is the effect that weapon has is it makes your infantry section feel reassured rather than Isn't that interesting. Rather than it scares the, shit, scares the shit out of the other side or is battlefield effective. The point is, it, you, you feel like you're laying down fire and you're in command of the situation. And, and, and the, the thing is, I mean, this is there's ongoing arguments even now around the because there's the, the FN Minimi, which is like a shrunk. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the shrunk Jimpy, which is, you know, which is a 5.56 Jimpy. All this argument. But 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 then you go back to Zuckerman and Zuckerman's going well, you can't even say why a bullet killed someone if it killed them. 
like a you know because a fragment of a a fragment of a mortar shell and i was reminded of this looking at that picture that you you posted of oh of, yeah uh, from dresden yeah yeah of the exploding mortar shell that a fragment if it's going like a like a tiny millimeter wide fragment if it's going fast enough will kill you because it because it's stopping when it hits you delivers so much energy that you you're killed by it but if it great but if it if, if it hits you but if it grazes your arm it'll it won't kill you and if it so so immediate or if it hits a button rather than your flesh something else will happen and basically he or basically, Stan Perry's wallet given to him or by whatever and Zuckerman basically says you know all these bold assertions that we've got going on about how you need a 0.30 round or a 303 round to stop a man are all comp- no one's actually looked into any of this it's all completely unscientific it's all basically soldiers saying well I reckon this and the engineers no one's tested the assumptions behind any of it and you get into this, you know, Wigram surfaces in the story mm. about how he's Wigram saying, well, you know, what you're going to need is to give everyone Sten guns because actually that's where that's where the killing is, is when you close with the enemy, that the right your, your, your rifles essentially a, a relic pointless what you need is more sten guns in the section because it's and more it's, mortars presumably uh, well, well well no it's it's two lm <clears throat> two lmgs and sten guns and that's what you need to do with an infantry section because it can't move properly um uh unless it's got two lmgs it can't leapfrog yeah. properly that's which is what the Falschmager have ex- exactly par- and which is what and which is which is what then apparently you know talking to rob lyman the other night that's what the the, the british army has now got back round to doing is two LMGs as a result, you know, like... Okay. Per section, per section of 10 men. Exactly, exactly. But it's just really, really interesting. But but the Zuckerman study is absolutely fascinating because no one had no one had done it, actually looked into it. It was just an assumption. And, you know, they're firing at... The, the Americans have the pig committee and the goat committee, That's and right. they're named after the animals they're testing the weapons on. And, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're shooting at a pig's body and they're going, that's what the bullet does. And Zuckerman, cause Zuckerman's basically making, making the point... That's a, that's a, as unrealistic a situation, let alone their pigs. That's un, as unrealistic a situation as you could possibly test a weapon in. And they have well a, in, 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 in the Paul Fussell, there is this this incredibly stark and vivid moment where he's in action. This is the fifteenth of March, this day where yeah. he goes into action. I think he gets yeah. wounded on that day as well. Yeah, he does. Yeah, uh, um, but he says before that day was over, I was sprayed with the contents of a soldier's torso when I was lying behind him and he knelt to fire at a machine gun holding us up. He was struck in the heart and out of the holes in the back of his field jacket flew little clouds of tissue, blood and powdered cloth. Near him, another man raised himself to fire, but the machine gun caught him in the mouth and as he fell, he looked back at me with surprise, blood and teeth dribbling out onto the leaves. He was the one to whom early on I'd given the silver star for heroism and he didn't want to let me down. You know, and you just get this incredibly yeah. vivid image, don't you, of sort of of woods and confusion and lead flying around all over the place and the kind of awful randomness of the violence. Yeah. And yeah. well, and you're, he, you know, the, the Zuckerman stuff all sounds very um, bang on, doesn't it? Well, he's just trying to, he's trying to, and he's actually trying to say to the. To the soldiers, he's saying, you've never actually looked into this. Well, and I always remember Alex Bowlby telling me that in the entire Italian campaign, he he doesn't think he he could ever remember firing his rifle at a German. Yeah. Yeah. Not once. 
Yeah. Well, and when actually, they get... he thought he was a pretty good soldier. Yeah. Because well, he could do the, everything well, that he needed the, to do. And the Americans, they have this tension between between um, the idea of the, 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 you know, the marksman lone rifleman and and then the bit of the army that goes, actually, no one hits anything. You just need to lay down a load of fire. And they tend to be people with experience of France from the First World War. And obviously right. the American experience of France is just that little bit shorter. Mm. So they, they haven't, you know, they, they don't have, they haven't necessarily had time to learn and digest the same um, uh, uh, lessons that the British have. Although the British stick with the, with a bolt-action rifle because it's cheaper. They do think there's, there, is a, there is a discussion about a semi-automatic rifle um, in the British Army between the wars. But they kept, they've got no money. Um, uh, they don't want to. They don't want to re-equip. They're worried about a new round and all that sort of thing. So they don't bother, or they, or rather, they decide against. And the American, the, th- the the whole point of the Garand is it delivers a round that if you're a marksman, lone rifleman in the image of the Springfield rifle that you know that can off a bloke a, a mile and a half away with a single shot, which is the the American ideal warrior ideal. If you if you the, you can do that with the round in the Garand, the point three round in theory. But you've also got a semi-automatic rifle because there's a whole faction in the army of God. No, you've just got to lay down fire. So even the fact you've got this big, heavy rifle that's semi-automatic is a compromise in itself. And even then, no one has actually looked into lethality of rounds, how, how, how bullets kill people, even if they do, even if anyone's shooting anyone. You know, so even if, you know, even if you are, even if you do hit anyone, will you yeah. will you kill them and 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 or stop them? You know, because there's because after all, there's a difference. It's just it's it's so, it it's so interesting that no one no one did the science, and then to read an account which just goes, look, it's just completely random. It's just it's it's steel flying about. There's no there's no rhyme nor reason to any of it. Yeah. Um. And even you know the, the idea of bra- I mean that's fascinating the idea of bravery there he gives the the guy the silver star so he doesn't want to let him down so if he'd not given him the silver star he might not have stood up and- he might have not stood up he might have lived you know so there's this you know the 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 myriad I mean at, at the end of that paragraph he says my platoon was virtually wiped away I was in disgrace I was hurt I was clearly expendable while I lay there the supply sergeant removed my issue wristwatch to pass on to my replacement. And I was twenty years old. I know it's just it's just unbelievable. Isn't it? I mean, no wonder you'd no wonder you'd come out of that thinking this has been a know, complete shit show. It's a complete shit show and a complete waste. And I, I suppose you know that 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 in the end it, it, it is how you can draw the conclusion that you know um, that 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 war is war is a pointless is a is a pointless waste, isn't it? I mean, it's not difficult if that's what he's experienced. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. But it just, it, it really made me think that, that a lot of, you know, obviously I'm sort of doing work on the Italian campaign at the moment, but, yeah. but it made me realise that, that a yeah. lot of that, that view of the Italian campaign is all caught up with a whole host of other things. Yeah. You know, disappointment. Yeah. Being second rate. What, what the hell is the point of this? In yeah. exactly the same way that Paul Fussell saying that being yeah. part of the 7th Army, yeah. who felt very sidelined, there's no question about it, and they yeah. had just as tough fighting as anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually did as as well as anyone else. You know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, they were pretty impressive and very well-led and all, all the rest of it. Yeah. But but we've said it before, but there, you, you, you've got to take ground, and there is no one else who can take ground but humans. I mean, you know, you have soldiers, foot soldiers, have to get up out of their foxholes. They have to actually progress across a wood 
through close a wood, with the enemy. across a field, close with the enemy, and, and take it from the enemy yeah. and move that line physically forward. And that has to be done by people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you're the very much the bottom of the chain. You're the interface, but you're the bottom of the chain. Yeah. You, you know, you, you as, a, as, a, as an infantryman, you know, clambering up Monte Cassino or Monte Altuzzo in the, in the Gothic line or, you know, in the Vosges Mountains or, or whatever it might be, you, you don't understand this kind of big, massive, monstrous operation which is going on behind you. This no. incredible coordination of logistics and supply and oil pipelines and dozers and guns and yeah. and air power and, and the, just the hot, you know ammunition trucks. You know that's not that's not your concern. You know you're just a. a second lieutenant in a platoon or yeah. a, or a pfc or not even that yeah you, you, you're part of the meat grinder you're part of the kind of the machine but you don't see all that but yeah. it suddenly makes me realize that you know in the case of the talent campaign that's why there's such a downer on it because it is those people like paul Fassell, yeah who are writing that first history yeah and, and all their disappointments and all their frustrations and all their bitterness about that sense of abandonment and memories of of someone having his head blown to pieces yeah. next to him on a rocky outcrop in winter of 1944. Yeah, that's all fe- being fed into it, and of course it is, and it's completely understandable. Well, well, I, I mean, but it doesn't is... mean that it's that it's as, as an objective history. It's not. No, as no, a no, no. But be, you could also see why the Cold War might. I mean, that thing he says about how you know we rearm our former enemy. To, to fight a former ally you could you you know in the idealism of the second world war when it's presented as this that, that that you do end up that way round two years two years after it ends is is pretty extraordinary actually i mean i it, you know i see that as just a sort of again uh, you know, just an artifact of the event that's just the events you know rather than rather than anything necessarily to be uh, yeah. uh, 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 bothered by but you can see why he might be uh, yeah. uh, and that 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 you know, ten years after the after the end of the Second World War, you're, the, you're in a complete, totally hysterical Cold War situation, and, and I think uh, no wonder that that could disillusion anyone uh, uh, is the truth, couldn't it? I mean, it's it's such an interesting article. I think what we'll do is I will read it as a sort of audio snippet, and we'll stick it on the Patreon for our Patreon uh, uh, members. Yeah, that's so a they can nice have idea. a listen. They can have a listen to the whole Paul uh, Fassell art. art article my war how i got irony in the infantry don't forget and um, by the way because i think we're we're, we're probably nearing the end of our uh, allotted I think, we are. I think we um, are. Uh, don't forget to check out the uh, festival website um yes uh, which is um for the uh, the festival incredible speakers i think should we just trot through the speakers jim jim again yeah, 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 yeah. mainly to yeah. high five ourselves for having got an in, such an incredible bill together so yeah. um who's our who, who would you say <laughs> is our absolute um headline i mean i think it's it's Max, isn't it? It's probably Max Hastings. Yeah, talking about Churchill as wartime leader. I think that's pretty special. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the veterans, uh, Morris yeah. Blick, who was a Belson survivor and, and now an incredibly yeah. internationally regarded and, and acclaimed sculptor and artist. Yeah. Um, Des Curtis, mosquito navigator. Uh, boy, what a story he had. Yeah. Um, uh, and lots of people. You know, we've got an international feel because we've got lots of people coming from Germany and Austria, yeah. Poland. 
Yeah. Uh, Bernard Cast, Jens Weiner from Dresden. Yeah. Uh, um, Christoph Berg from Germany. Uh, John McManus, Professor John McManus from, yeah. from the US. That's fantastic. A totally brilliant historian and, yeah. and such a wonderful communicator as well. And, and he yeah. speaks so much sense. And, and you know, he's doing a, a host of different things. Yeah. Um, Mark, the brilliant Mark Milner. Yeah. Um, coming to talk about the Atlantic War with Stephen Prince. Yeah. Um, Catch a higher. Um, yeah. Alex Ritchie, yeah. um, Paul, know, Beaver. Paul, Paul Beaver, um, all, all your favourites. Yeah, and then um, uh, uh, one of Catherine our... Catherine Himmler. Yes, Catherine Himmler, um, to talk about um, the, the legacy of that surname. Um, yep. uh, uh, one of our regular listeners who's, who's, who's uh, vaulted to, um, <laughs> to the, the perilous position of a speaker, Andy Aitchison, who's going to talk about 52nd Lola Division. And Andy Chatterton, of course. Andy Chatterton, of course, chats, talk about stable um, Joe got, Coles from Hush Kit. Yep. Um, Philip Payson O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. Phil, oh, Philip well, yeah. doing boring war. Yeah. Logistics from Second World War to Ukraine. So he's um he's he's looking at it. That's a very that that's going to be very interesting. Anyway, so if you go to wehavewaysfest.co.uk, um, uh, you can pick up your tickets there. There are day tickets. There are weekend tickets. Sorry yeah. to do a bit of hustle there, dear listener, but um, uh, we'd like to see you there. We think we're we laying on we're la- laying um, on. And I think the bill. other thing to say about it is is is. Oh, there's also absolutely gargantuan amounts of, of hardware. We've got David yeah, Willey yeah. and people like that yeah, coming along. Yeah. And, you know, from trucks to Jeeps to German yeah. tanks to Cromwells to, yeah. you know, um, and it's looking like we're going to have some German stuff there as well, which yeah. is very, very exciting. And Lots in, of bangs. And in um, keeping with um, uh, uh, the kit off that we're doing at the moment, which is you build a model kit for under 30 quid um, in aid of Ukraine, Tamiya, um, the uh, iconic model making firm, are coming to join us. Um, they'll they'll have a stand um, uh, as the as the official model retailer. They were there last time. Um, yeah, I brought a couple of I brought a couple of my efforts along. Um, I gave some of them away because I don't know what to do with them all. <laughs> well, I've got one of them behind me. Yeah, have yeah you have my my I, I've been making less since uh, lockdown ended because sitting at the kitchen well, you table. Well, things to do now, haven't you? Well, exactly for t- for 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 twelve well, hours. Right. <laughs> uh, but the other thing I was going to say, which I think is really really lovely about this festival, is that all our speakers, um, you know, they hang out. They're there for most of them are there for the weekend, so they might have their hour slot where they they're doing a talk a specific talk on stage or whatever but they're basically just hanging out and and we really encourage them and people who come to just chat so you can talk to these people informally people whose books you've read you can meet mark milner all the way over from the far side of canada and you can talk to him pick his brains yeah he'll give you the time of day share a pint with you exactly and and we like that kind of level of intimacy yeah and it's really encouraged access access, in fact i mean i mean you know i can't think anywhere else where you can do this i really there's nowhere where you can do this yeah yeah Yeah. so we have ways uh fest.co.uk um uh and well we look forward to seeing you there if you can make it um and that's the weekend of the 22nd of july isn't it that's the other thing when is it they're going when is it you morons yeah yeah yeah, yeah. don't forget that bit (laughs) Anyway, um, a reminder, uh, we've got an, an intriguing chat this Thursday with Simon Parkin about the German and Austrian citizens interned on the Isle of Man. Um, at, well, and the whole system and the whole process. Thanks for joining us. Um, uh, see you next time. Nice to talk to you, Jim. I like these ones where we just sort of uh, yeah, me go too, discursive. Me too. It's yeah, 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 yeah. Always, always my favourites. <laughs> Cheerio, everyone. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.